0: okay here we are back again this is didactic mind episode 66 one-tenth of the beast um, episode 66 the will to act as always very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers Uh, very warm welcome to all of my subscribers either on the site or on soundcloud if you have not subscribed to uh, my mailing list please make sure you do so there'll be a link in the description box if you have not uh, subscribed... Did I say SoundCloud? I meant Podbean. Oops. Um, if you have not subscribed to my Podbean feed, please make sure you subscribe. That way you never ever miss a new upload or a new, uh, uh, new article whenever they go up. Um, this podcast almost didn't happen, to be honest. And uh, the reason it didn't nearly didn't happen is because, uh, not because of anything sinister, obviously, it's just basically, um, I have come across a phenomenal new, uh, well, not new, but a phenomenal series starring um, <laughs> the guy who always dies in every show, uh, Sean Bean. For those of you who are history buffs, I highly recommend you go to YouTube and you search for the Sharp TV series. All of them. Uh, they're bloody fantastic, every single one. And they're based on the novels by Bernard Cromwell. Uh, you know, Sharp, uh, Sharp's Rifles, Sharp's Eagle, Sharp's Waterloo, Sharp's Enemy, Sharp's Trafalgar, Sharp's... Sharp's Trafalgar, is that right? Sharp's, um, Sharp's Challenge, Sharp's Peril, Sharp's whatever, etc., etc., etc. They're all very, very good. I'm ne- Here's the funny thing. I've never read the novels... But I remember um, my history teacher, all the way back in Australia. So we're talking twenty years ago. Okay, twenty years. I still remember him telling me this, Doctor Gonson. Uh, Doctor Gonson told me, well, I mean, not me, but he told the the whole bloody class um, <clears throat> uh, about the Battle of Waterloo. He, he was Doctor Gonson was a proper professor of history. I mean. Uh, had a doctorate in history, and could probably very easily have taught history in university if he wanted to. And uh, we were studying, I believe, the American Civil War, or as I have subsequently come to know it, the War Between States, which is by far the most accurate description of it, the most accurate and most neutral. There's nothing civil about that war. Um, but somehow we got the conversation going on to... Um, battlefield tactics in the Napoleonic Wars and he started talking about the Sharp series by Bernard Cromwell and uh, he said that if you want a truly accurate understanding of battlefield tactics um, in the Napoleonic Wars and uh, you want a really really good fictional retelling of some of the greatest battles of those wars then you cannot do better than those sharp series um, of books. Um, there is a, uh, another um, excellent book, which I highly recommend. Now, if only I could play well find it. It's called Rifles, and it's about um, the British uh, riflemen under Wellington. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Rifles, the the... Uh, Troops of Wellington, book, it's somewhere on Amazon, I don't know, I mean, it's six years with that's it, six years with Wellington's, that's the one, Mark Urban, Rifles, six years with Wellington's legendary sharpshooters, bloody fantastic book, cannot recommend it strongly enough, I, re- I remember reading it in college, and it's absolutely freaking fantastic, it's a it's a great book, you've got to read this, it, I mean, it'll whiz by It's a a truly fantastic book. And here's the funny thing. Ninety-fifth Rifles, that is exactly the regiment uh, or the unit that that, uh, Richard Sharp is attached to in Bernard Cromwell's books. And uh, if you want a non-fictional account of the the background to um, the Napoleonic Wars and, and the kind of places where Richard Sharp, the fictional character, actually fought, then that is the book to read. There will be a uh, link to that in the description box. And I'm just looking at Amazon right now. For some reason, um, The Storm of Steel by Ernst Jünger comes up as one of the recommendations following that book. I've read that too. Um, That is not from the Napoleonic Wars. It's from World War I. And it is probably the finest book of its kind ever written from the perspective of a battlefield soldier about both the horror and the glory of war. Um, the translation is very good. The version that I read, uh, it, the, the original in German is called in Um And the translation that I read has like a 60-page, good Lord, 60-page forward by the translator. Don't bother with the, 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 the forward. It's useless. It's boring as hell. Read the rest of the book, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but anyway, all that aside, I almost didn't make this podcast because I was too busy watching uh, Sharp's Rifles, um, which is a great film. And the last few days I've been watching, well, I, yesterday I watched Sharp's Waterloo, and uh, the day before that I watched uh, Sharp's Challenge, and uh, uh, soon I'll be probably watching uh, Sharp's Peril, which are the, the two latest ones. Those are available on Netflix. Um, the rest of the Sharp series is not, they're only available on YouTube, and for free, so you can go online and, you know, somebody's stolen the, I mean, not stolen, uh, shall we say, borrowed the films and uploaded them onto YouTube very creatively, so they are there if you want them, um, and I highly recommend them because they are fantastic. So anyway. Um, all of that aside, uh, I, like I said, I was so consumed watching these videos that uh, I very nearly did not make this podcast and, um, and that would have been a shame because I really do believe in uh, delivering, you know, in in certain habits, in doing things that uh, my subscribers and my readers expect of me. And even if nobody listens to this podcast, even if no one bothers to download it, nobody cares about whether or not I made it, you know, it's out there. It's uh, it's my way of giving back to people and my way of kind of spreading the message. Um, what message is that? Well, it's a message about what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true. And today, I really wanted to build on a theme that I touched on in yesterday's post, um, my post, uh, was, um, it basically was titled, uh, from, uh, to whom much is given, or from whom much uh, is given. Uh, and what that means is, for those to whom much is given, that's the title of the post. And the title of that post refers to a very specific, very, very terrifying verse in the Bible. It doesn't sound terrifying, but it actually is. That verse in the Bible is in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, Verse forty-five. Uh, verse, sorry, verse forty-eight. <clears throat> um, I'll read the whole passage, uh, and I quoted it in my uh, in my in my post. Peter said, "Lord, are you telling us this? Are you telling this parable for us or for all?" And the Lord said, "Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portions of food at the proper time?" Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and, on an, and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserves a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more." Now, all of this was in response to um, a very old friend, actually. Uh, someone who's been reading my work for, oh, pff, I don't know, six years at least of the eight that I've been doing this crap. Um, he's been around for a long time. Kapios is a friend of ours from, I believe, from Cyprus, um, all, all the way in the, the Mediterranean. And uh, he had a question for me about how to how to get things done, how to deal with the stresses of daily life, and how to avoid becoming downhearted and discouraged, um, especially in light of the fact that the world very clearly absolutely hates us. So, I wrote down some thoughts, and um, I wanted to expand a little bit upon them. I'm not going to retread all of them, but Basically, I want to, um, I want to expand on a follow-up comment that, uh, Kapios made, which was all about, um, how it's hard to find the time and the, the motivation to move. And here's the thing. Um, this is a severe problem for all of us in, you know, in, in the modern world, especially when we are surrounded by so much comfort and so much ease. It's very easy for us to forget that we are here to do something. We are here to accomplish a mission. Um, Most of us don't know what that mission is. Some of us are lucky enough to find out. I was lucky enough to discover what my purpose is in life. Um, Many would argue, and I myself have argued, that my specific purpose in life is to do nothing much more than uh, stand forward as an example of what not to do so that people, so that other men can look at me and point and laugh and say, don't do what that poor slimy bugger did. Um, I am very sympathetic to that point of view, to be honest. Uh, I am, there are many, there, has been, there have been many days when I have been utterly convinced that that is my soul. Purpose in life to show the world that this is what you should not do and you should not act this way you should not be this way Um, and if that's my purpose then fine but I think I have a greater purpose than that and it was it is in it is through posts like the one that I wrote yesterday that I express that um, that purpose And, uh, in which I, you know, through posts like that, where I teach and show other men how to thrive and prosper in in a world that hates them. Speaking of the world that hates us, uh, brief diversion here, and I promise it will be brief. Um, many of you have probably come across the whole game stonk uh, phenomenon over the last week. It's been bloody fantastic. It's been a lot of fun to watch. Basically, if you're unfamiliar with the process, um, a bunch of individual investors on a, Wall, uh, on a subreddit uh, called Wall Street Bets r slash Wall Street Bets discovered that hedge funds were shorting huge amounts of GameStop stock. Now, if you know anything about GameStop, you know who they are. They're video game retailers, and their stock was trading as low as five dollars a share um, not too long ago. Why? Because they were getting absolutely crushed and hammered by online video game sales and, of course, by the great and terrible Kung Flu. But they had implemented a turnaround plan, and they were profitable. Hedge funds were betting that the shares would go basically to zero, and they had essentially shorted more shares than existed of GameStop for trading on the market. Um, None of this is technically illegal, but it bloody well ought to be. Short selling is not illegal, and I don't agree with those who say that it should be outlawed. I'm not convinced of that. I do believe that short selling offers um, a useful function in the market. Um, that being said, the fact that so many hedge funds were colluding to drive down the price of GameStop, uh, GameStop says that something very, very funky was going on and uh, nothing good would come out of that process at all. Um, this is very typical. Wall Street does do some very unscrupulous things and when hedge funds collude to drive down the price of a stock, it's very hard to stop it from happening. But the the guys over at uh R/Wall Street, that's turned the tables. They bought up shares of Game GameStop, bloody hell, and watched it soar. And uh over the course of one week, just one week they made a 406% gain. Now, what does all of this have to do with uh, the world that hates you? Well, it's very simple. The, um, the online deep disk, well, actually free brokerage Robinhood banned them from selling their shares. Individual investors were banned from selling their shares. But hedge funds were fine. How does this work? Hedge funds were allowed to recoup their losses and cover their uh, short sales, but if you wanted to sell, if you're just an average Joe on the street and you bought GameStop thinking, hey, this is great, it's going up, and you decided you wanted to sell and get out, uh -uh, you can't do that. Why? Because a brokerage says, no, you can't do it. So now you understand the game is rigged, completely and totally rigged against you. If it's rigged, you need to find a way to turn the tables. And the fastest way to do that is to stop these people from selling your data. The fastest way to do that is to get yourself a VPN subscription. Why? Because now with a VPN, you can surf the net pretty much anonymous. It's not 100% foolproof, but it's pretty close. The best VPN or the best value VPN out there, the best value for your money is Surfshark. There'll be a a link in the description box. Make sure you uh, click on it and get an 81% discount. 81%. That's enormous. For a two-year VPN subscription, you're paying $2.50 a month. For the price of a cup of Starbucks coffee that tastes like it's been filtered through some hobo's kidneys before it gets to you, you can tell Google and Facebook and Amazon and every other one of these big tech weasels to F off. Now, yes, I know. I mean, I have Amazon affiliate links all over the place. I make money off of them. So... You know, <clears throat> I get my cut, but I don't I don't depend on them for anything. So if you want to take advantage of the big tech titans the way they want to take advantage of you, get yourself a VPN connection and make sure that they can't sell your data and start using DuckDuckGo and start using other tools that are at your disposal. Um, eventually, I will try to put together a guide uh, which will show you exactly how you can start untethering yourself from big tech and uh, I hope to have that ready for all of my readers and subscribers over the next few weeks. I've been promising it since last year. Never got around to it, but hopefully it'll be done soon. So make sure you get yourself a copy or a subscription to Surfshark. Now, going back to this issue of how to act in a world that hates you, the will to act is the single most powerful thing you have. It's the one thing that no one can take away from you. But most of us don't use it, and why is that? Because it's easier to stay where we are. It's easier and it's safer. Here's the problem: we have, particularly if you are of a very high level of intelligence. And I find, that, I mean, I'm not trying to snout. I'm not trying to sound snobbish here. Um, I am much more intelligent than average, but I'm not, you know, like 150 level IQ. That's that's not me. I know a couple of people who are 150 level IQ. Um, oddly enough. I'm much better at mathematics than they are, but they are much better at, like, processing vast amounts of information and jumping to conclusions quickly than I am. Um, Vox Day, you know, internet superintelligence, our beloved and dreaded supreme dark lord Vox Day. peace be unto him, he's one. Uh, Another one of my readers, he lives down in South Florida, no, actually not South Florida, in the Panhandle region, um, is another. Um, And there are a couple of others. my, my friend and fellow shitlord, uh, Last Readout is another, uh, 150 plus IQ character. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Cratman. Um, so I know, I know a fair, fair few of these people. And, uh, all of these guys are extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinarily gifted. Um, and all of them, at some point or another, have probably had a hard time acting. Why? Why is it difficult for them to find the motivation to move? and to do things. Because being highly intelligent, you tend to get stuck in your own head. You tend to find yourself overthinking. You tend to start worrying too much about what are the negatives and the downsides and the consequences of any action. And you 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 end up trapped in paralysis by analysis. And this is a terrible, terrible place to be. Most of us cannot avoid this. Um, but the people that I have seen thrive under these conditions are actually not that intelligent. And I, you know, that's not meant as an insult. I mean, they're capable of doing something that more intelligent people can't do. So that's to their credit. I mean, in this respect, they are certainly uh, much more worthy and much more impressive than people who, on paper at least, are vastly more qualified or more intelligent. In that respect, they have something that we don't. And that's a good thing. This is not, you know, this is not an issue of snobbery, um, and nor should it be. Um, What we see among those people who just act and who just do is a willingness to take risks. And this is where the will to act becomes so important. You need to understand that your brain is... Trying to protect you from harm, but in the process, it usually overestimates the probability of bad things happening and underestimates the probability of good things happening. That's called effective risk management. But in the process, it stops you from getting what you want and what you deserve. I know I've been in that position so many times; it's not even funny. Um, I'm, you know, I, I end up in that position on a, like a weekly basis around here. Um, you just feel lazy and you don't want to, to move and you don't want to do anything. Um, this is very, very, very hard to overcome, but it can be overcome. And I'll, I'll, I want to give you a, a couple of tools or a couple of ideas about how to overcome this problem. Um, when, when and if you confront it. The first is to, understand that the more unpleasant an action seems, the more likely it is to benefit you. In other words, to take an even bigger step back, the first thing you need to understand is that the greater the pain that you feel in contemplating an action, the more likely it is to be the right one. I'll give you a couple of very, very precise examples. Last year, uh, when I was planning to come to Pommy Bastard Land, which is where I am right now, um, and you know, start basically start over, try to try to reset and start a new life here. Um, I could not bring myself to book my flights and book my accommodations because it, the the Kung Flu situation was so like uncertain. It was impossible to make any plans. I had no idea if my flights would be cancelled. I had no idea. How long my quarantine period would be. I had no idea what would happen to me when I got here. I just had no clue. So I just, I, I kept postponing and postponing and postponing and postponing the decision. And I said to myself, it doesn't, yeah, there's no, not really any consequences. But then I, it came to about a month. Um, it was actually uh, right at the beginning of December. I mean, it's a couple of days into December and all of my orientation induction activities were finished. And I realized, look, if I don't do this now, I'm not going to leave. And if I don't leave, what the hell was the point of going through all of this time and effort and energy that I've spent over the last three weeks, you know, on Zoom meetings and calls and God only knows what else. It's been a, a bloody painful time. What am I still doing here? I'm ready to leave. It's time to go. But I still couldn't bring myself to book the damn ticket. Finally, I just forced myself to do it. I just, I literally just sat down and I found the fastest available flight ticket to go to Merry Oldie England and, um, booked it for, uh, like two days before the new year. And I flew out and I've been here, um, over a month now. Uh, much of it spent in lockdown, actually. Uh, all of it, outward. All of it spent under lockdown. Um, That being said, I mean, lockdown where I am is considerably more lenient than in, um, in, well, London, excuse me, for instance, Um, which is where a lot of my friends are based. I'm not in London. I'm not gonna say where I am, but I'm not in London. And uh, I'm very happy for that because the Londoners are taking this way too bloody seriously they're terrified out of their wits and they're letting their government push them around which is ridiculous the Kung Flu is not particularly dangerous unless you're over a certain age and you have health problems if you're young and fit you're probably going to be just fine and uh, indeed the people that I know who've had it have been just fine so, you know you have to act and you have to just take a chance Um, Julius Caesar is a perfect example of this. Remember how all of us who supported and still support his most illustrious, uh, benevolent, august... Uh, hang on a second. Let me, <laughs> let me get this right. His most illustrious, uh, benevolent... His. Hang on. Uh, I've got this. I can't believe I haven't used this in a while. Uh, his... Let's see about this. Uh, where is it? Here we go. His most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary Celestial Majesty, the God Emperor of Mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the Lion of Midnight, the Chaddest of Chads, may the Lord bless him and preserve him. Uh we all thought that he was going to cross the Rubicon, or the you know the Potomac, and start um you know hanging traitors and hornlists and prostitutes uh off the bridges and I really, really, really wanted him to start up, um, a, uh, a, an American version of Air Pinochet and start taking traitors, um, on one-way helicopter rides up towards the top of the Washington Monument. Well, you know, a one-way in that you only go up in the helicopter one way. You, you do come back down, just not in the helicopter. So all I'm going to say. And I would really have loved to see that happen, because I'm at the point now where I'm like, I don't care if America breaks apart in a civil war. It's long overdue at this point. It's that bad. The situation is that awful. But it didn't happen. Now, the the, the model that we took in our heads for this was Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon the Rubicon is just a little piddling little stream. It's a, it's a, it's a trifle. It's it just marks it, it marks an arbitrary border um, that the Romans themselves said you cannot cross this border with an armed escort. It's not allowed. Why? Because uh, some time earlier uh, Sulla had violated that rule of marching into Rome with uh, an armed legion and had conquered the city, basically, and ruled as a dictator. And um, undone a lot of reforms, and uh, directly challenged the power of the Senate, and, and so on and so forth. Julius Caesar wasn't sure of the loyalty of his troops. He did not cross the Rubicon with his best and most loyal legion. He wasn't sure how he would be received in the city itself. There was massive uncertainty about whether or not the people would actually support him, despite everything that he had done to secure their support. He wasn't sure about how he would administer the city. He had no idea what could happen. He only knew that he had two possible outcomes. One, uh, life as a dictator, or two, death as a fugitive. So, given that those were Caesar's choices, he acted. And it's very, very hard to do that uh, for most men. But look at what became of him. He took a tremendous risk, and he reaped the rewards. Now, I'm not saying that every man has to make such massive gambles. It is possible to um, act prudently in such situations and that is indeed the second point. The first point is that you must act. You must find the will to act. The second point is you must act responsibly. And this is where you need to understand the difference between risk and uncertainty. I've harped on about this for years, and this is born out of very long, and in some cases very bitter, experience. Risk is a concept that most people don't understand, because most people don't understand probabilities. The people who do understand probabilities, and understand them well, are the kinds who do very, very well in places like Las Vegas and Atlantic City. Uh, if you're hearing a bit of a scratching noise, that's just me putting on a jacket, it's, I'm feeling a bit cold. Um, if you understand the difference between risk and uncertainty, and I believe I've talked about this before in previous podcasts, um, but if I haven't, then you're hearing it for the first time. The difference between risk and uncertainty is fairly simple. And I look at it from a mathematician's point of view because that's my area of expertise and training in a risky situation, you know all of the possible events. You know exactly what could happen. You succeed or you fail based on how accurately you predict the probability that those events will occur. So for example, you bet on the weather. You decide whether you shall go out for a walk or stay inside based on the probability that it will rain at a certain time. If you say that there is a 60% chance that it will rain at 4 p.m. and there is a 40% chance that it will not, what is your expected payoff from going for a walk versus staying indoors? You have to weigh that and then you essentially come up with an expectation of what will happen if you go out for a walk uh, or if you don't and so on. So uh, to put it in financial terms let's say um would you take $50 right now you know guaranteed or would you take uh a bet between uh, on a on a toss of a coin you get $100 if you land heads and 0 if you land tails which of these two is a better option Well, actually, they're both worth exactly the same amount, in expected value. That is a key concept in in mathematical terms. It's a very, very key concept. But here's the thing. If you present that exact um, set of alternatives to most people, most will say, I will take the $50 straight up. Guaranteed. Why? Because most people are risk-averse. And you, as a man, are almost certainly risk-averse. You believe that it is better to have fifty dollars now versus a hundred dollars on the cost hundred dollars or zero dollars on the toss of a coin even though the outcomes on average are exactly the same if you give people an even bigger bet if you say um, I will offer you a hundred dollars now, Guaranteed, or I will offer you ten thousand uh, dollars on uh, with a with a probability of one percent if something you know happens like this, or zero if something else happens. Right. So if you um, if you, you know, if you have some random event with a chance of one in hundred of happening, uh, and you bet ten thousand dollars on that, and you get zero if anything else happens the other 99 possibilities come true. Most people would say, I would rather take the $100 now. Why? Because most people are risk-averse. They don't think about the um, expectations. And in in those situations, of course, it makes sense to take guaranteed money versus extremely risky money. And that's another aspect that you have to understand. Risk has grades to it. Again, $100 now versus ten thousand uh, dollars if a one in a hundred event happens or zero if any of the other 99 events happen that's extremely risky that's an extremely risky bet but here's the thing you can still profit or lose based on how well you analyze the situation in front of you that analysis and that skill comes from experience it comes from actually it comes from good judgment and where where does good judgment come from Good judgment comes from experience. And where does experience come from? It comes from bad judgment. That is a risky situation. Most of us make the mistake of confusing risk with uncertainty. Here's an uncertain situation. Uncertainty is where you don't even know the events themselves. And therefore, it is impossible to make any kind of plan. How do you act under a regime of uncertainty? Well, let's define uncertainty first and foremost. Um, Uncertainty. Will the gyms reopen? We don't know. Will gyms reopen in February? We don't know. Will schools reopen in March? We don't know. Will there be any corner stores that sell retail goods in April? We don't know. Will we be able to travel out of the country in April, you know, by mid-April? We don't know. We don't know if any of this stuff will happen. Why? Because there's an incredibly uncertain... Um, regime right now. The, the Kung Flu is playing absolute havoc with anybody's ability to make long-term plans. We simply don't know what could happen. The events themselves are unknown. Every single day, the, cov- the, the government in the UK comes up with some new harebrained, idiotic policy that, compl- that completely contradicts the harebrained, idiotic policy from the day before. And the next day, they'll come up with another harebrained, idiotic policy. It's impossible to figure out what could happen. Why? Because everyone is so bloody terrified of a virus with a 99.7% survival rate you know, for people under a certain age. What are you supposed to do in situations like that? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do at all. You just have to try to muddle through the best you can. You can't make plans. You just have to act and live in the moment. And that's what makes living under uncertainty such a colossal pain in the ass. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly frustrating. It wears you down. It destroys your morale. But here's the thing. Most people confuse risk with uncertainty. Most of us say we're, we're living in uncertain times. You're not. You're not living in uncertain times. You're actually living in risky times. You're living in a time when you simply cannot understand um, the true risk of something. So that falls on you. The burden of figuring out whether you live in a risky time or an uncertain time falls on you. You have to learn how to make the distinction between the two. You have to learn how to judge for yourself and discern when you are dealing with risk versus when you are dealing with uncertainty. When you are dealing with risk, the will to act is what will get you through to the next stage. When you are dealing with uncertainty, the will to act is what will make you take a step out the door and go and get what you want out of life. The next thing that I want to talk about is something that I referenced in my earlier post, and it is this concept of extreme ownership. Once you understand that you must act, and you must move in life, and you must simply commit no matter what, because your brain is, is, is trying to stop you from doing things to stop you from getting hurt. And once you understand that taking risks is actually good for you, in some ways, it's, it's a good thing to take a certain amount of risk. And that you can predict the outcomes and the probabilities to a certain extent. Most people are very, very bad at predicting outcomes. But with practice, you can get good at it. You can get good at it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Wall Street trader. I've worked alongside Wall Street traders. I worked alongside some of the best Wall Street traders in the industry. These guys are amazing at predicting risk and, 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 and figuring out outcomes. I learned a thing or two from them, you know, while I sat beside them and while I studied with them and, and understood how they, how they think. These guys are constantly thinking about risk and uncertainty. They're constantly evaluating what could go wrong and what they need to figure out and what they need to hedge against. But ultimately, they themselves always knew that there was no there was no way to hide. There was nothing that they could hide from. There was nothing that they could hide behind either. I'll give you a really specific example. When I um, worked at a big European bank, uh, this was years ago. Um, I, I managed the. I managed a book of uh, fairly exotic derivatives and a couple of years after I left that team and stopped managing that book, the trader for that book left and a new guy came in and took over and he made some bets in that book, very large bets actually, based on economic forecasts that made perfect sense at that time. This was back when the god emperor had come to power. the, the Halcyon days of the God-Emperor, uh, when when you know, things were really looking up, things things were looking good for the U.S. economy because America finally had a president in power who understood the power of doing what he said he was going to do and of delivering on his promises and of a, a low-regulation, high-dynamism environment uh, and of a basically a... You know, he was going to deliver a lot of tax cuts, which would spur a lot of economic growth. So, um, the trader involved made a specific bet on a specific economic indicator. And he bet that it would go up very quickly. Now, oddly enough, this was one of the few economic indicators that didn't go up very quickly. Um, Somehow, and I have some ideas as to how, but I'm not going to tell them here, that indicator did not tick upwards Um, at the rate that was expected. So by the time the summer came around, that book had lost, and I'm not joking about this, about $50 million. That was on top of a major um, scandal. It was unreported in the press at the time, as I recall. But there was a massive scandal, internally at least, where that same book had lost $60 million the year before. Why had it lost so much money? Because the trader that I worked with left and the junior guy on the desk didn't, it wasn't his fault. I mean, he just didn't, he wasn't trained properly and he didn't know what he was doing. Nobody had stepped in to, to kind of check his homework, basically. He was just too junior to, and too, too, too raw to understand what he was playing with. And because he was extremely risk averse and, and extremely scared of losing his job, he basically just tried to keep everything the way it was. Um but in a derivatives business, you cannot keep your market inputs fixed. If you do, the market moves, and you will always find yourself mispricing relative to the market. But he tried to maintain things and keep mispricing things and pretend like it was all, all okay, and it wasn't okay. So the, the previous year, the book had lost 60 million dollars. the next year it lost another 50 million because of bad market bets, including $10 million loss in a single night. None of the models picked up on this, none of them, none of the models realized that this was a problem because all of the losses were well within limits, were well within risk limits. That trader and his junior guy got canned within a month of that happening, or maybe it was two months. Traders have some of the most stressful jobs in the world. Because they understand that they are the only ones responsible. There's no one to hide behind. Now, I'm not saying you need to go to that extreme. Because that's bloody terrifying. That's one of the reasons why I have always refused to go into a trading job. I I have never wanted to be a trader of any kind in any financial institution. I have always said I don't want to stomach the stress and the nervousness and the problems. But... You can learn some lessons from something like this. You can learn to accept responsibility for your actions and to accept that you alone can fix the problems that you've created. The will to act means that you must accept responsibility when things go wrong. It's not easy. It's not fun. Most people don't want to accept responsibility. That's just the reality. Most people, let's be honest here. Let's be really, really honest with each other. Most people want to be told what to do. They don't want to think for themselves. They don't want to take a risk. They don't want to put themselves out there, to have their precious egos smashed into dust. They don't want to do it. Why is that? Because it hurts them. It makes them feel bad. It makes them feel like they're not worth much. Bitch, get over yourself, you know? If if that's how you feel, get over yourself. No one cares. No one gives a shit. I'm not saying that as somebody without sympathy. I'm saying that as somebody who's been through some of the most humiliating and degrading experiences possible. Not the most, but some of the most. I've endured ridicule and mockery and shame and misery and failure on a scale that most people can't even imagine all my life. You know, um, when I was a kid, I was constantly mocked for being fat and out of shape. When uh, I entered university, I was constantly ostracized for being, you know, just too geeky for my own good. When I graduated university, I had no social skills whatsoever or almost none. And I, I couldn't get a date for years. Um, when I lost my jobs repeatedly, one after another after another, uh, I had to face severe and repeated personal failure. And it always happened at the worst possible time. You know, at times when labor markets were just saturated uh, with job out-of-work job seekers looking for anything, something, anything, just to get them through the next, uh, the next month's payments. That was me. You know, I, I was just in a, in a in this in this constant perpetual cycle of of failure. And you know what? It actually made me better. It made me stronger. I went through an internal assessment the other day. And um, for whatever reason because I've spent so much time talking to very senior people in trading businesses. And these are not people you you screw with. These are not people you trifle with. You don't waste their time. They don't have the time to waste. Because I've spent so much time talking to them and explaining to them in very simple, clear terms exactly what they need to know and no more than that, I'm very good at speaking off the cuff. And also, I mean, you, you can tell, I get a lot of practice because of my podcasts. So I have a lot of ability to look at a presentation, look at the slides on a screen, and as long as I know the source material, I can just spout on very easily, at length. No problem. It's easy for me. Most people don't have that talent I've discovered. Most people are scared shitless of standing up in front of a crowd and offering an opinion. They're like, oh my god, I don't want to do this. Who cares? Who cares? You embarrass yourself in front of 60 people. So what? Embarrass yourself in front of 6,000 people. So what? Yeah, okay, they'll remember you for, for a while and they'll remember that you made an ass out of yourself in front of them. Okay. So bloody what? Get on with your life. Their opinions don't matter. That's the thing. Most of us psych ourselves out because we think other people's opinions matter and they really don't. Here's the thing. Once you accept that Most people's opinions of you just don't matter. That's an incredibly liberating experience. The only people whose opinions should matter to you are those of your parents, maybe, if you're trying to be a good son to them. Their opinions should matter to you. They raised you, they gave you their values, and hopefully you will pass on those values to your children. Your wife, obviously, her opinion of you matters a lot. It's extremely important. I mean, she married you for a reason. Presumably because you're an honorable and decent and good man. Hopefully, you will prove that to her. Your children's opinions will matter to you immensely, as they should. You're a role model. You're the man. You should give your kids something to aspire towards. Their opinions of you should matter enormously. And that's it. That's about it. You'll find a few others, you know, your friends, your pastor maybe, perhaps your boss, but not really, not, not necessarily. Your colleagues, your co-workers, well, they'll move on. They'll go somewhere else. They'll, they'll do something else with their lives. Your boss is not permanent. You can move around. If you don't like your job now, you can do something else. His opinion of you is not the the be-all and end-all of who you are. And the thing is, you can always change people's perceptions of you. You can change yourself. You can make yourself. You can become better. You're not stuck with who you are. As long as you have the will to act and the will to change, you have everything you need to conquer every obstacle in front of you. And that's the key thing to remember. The fourth point I want you to remember with respect to this idea of finding the will to push through obstacles is that iron sharpens iron. Again, um, I want to go back to this idea of an internal assessment, because I didn't really complete the thought. Um, this internal assessment that I had to do the other day wasn't easy, but it wasn't particularly hard either, at least not in my opinion. I mean, the rest of my team was shit scared of it. I don't know why. I was like, this isn't hard. But it sent, here's here's how it here's uh here's how it played out. Um, we had twenty minutes in which to make a presentation, and during that presentation, and yeah, the five of us on the on the Zoom call. It is, usually would be done in person, but this this time it was on a Zoom call because obviously. UK government says any number of people in any small confined space is lethal and everyone will die And I mean, whatever you know, bloody Boris Johnson but anyway we're on the Zoom call and we have 20 minutes to give a spiel and uh, it's 20 minutes of explaining what we're working on and uh, who, the, who our client is and uh, what we're trying to do for our client and um, what outcome we're looking for and what methods we're going to use to gather the data and uh, how we plan to analyze things and what we plan to put together, and so, you know, all the all the rest of it. And we have to be very precise about uh, how we're going to protect the anonymity of any respondents to surveys, and we have to provide a very clear understanding of our risks, assumptions, limitations, and so on and so forth, we can give a timeline. So you've got 20 minutes to do this, and it's not a long time. 20 minutes runs by really fast, I can tell you that from just speaking on a podcast. We have 20 minutes, and then we have 15 minutes in which the opposing team, the red team, basically gets to ask us all sorts of uncomfortable and terrifying questions, and the red team supervisor gets to ask us the same questions, and uh, then we have to go away for 20 minutes and reflect upon all that we did wrong and all that we did right, and then we have to come back in and talk to the two supervisors, you know, our supervisor and the other team's supervisor. And we have to discuss everything that um, that we experience and how we plan to improve. And we can't be defensive, and we can't take things personally, and and so on and so forth. And, and the rest of my team are just crapping themselves. They're like, holy shit! They're going to get us. They're going to they're going to ask us such hard questions. And here's the thing: the, the we weren't the first team to present. Actually, there was a team before us in the same sort of block. Um, the team before us was our red team, and we were their red team. So they presented at nine a.m. and we presented at like ten forty. So the nine a.m. team went, and they had a, a massive, massive, huge, glaring, gigantic logical flaw on one of their slides, and it was—it was like literally. They said, we're going to take the whole population of this, this, this region, and, um, we're going to, r- we run it through this very fancy statistical model. They should have known better than to try to bullshit people on a call, because I have, as I've said, you know, two degrees in mathematics, one of which is in financial mathematics, so I know something about how probabilities work. So, and, and how statistics work. So they had this very fancy formula on the screen, and I'm looking at it going, yeah, that's the right formula for selecting a sample size. Um, so I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, they're going to do a random sample of however many respondents to a survey. Okay, yeah, no problem. Two slides later, they say, oh, yeah, we're actually going to interview these specific people in this specific region of this specific part of the, the country. And my bullshit detector immediately starts jumping up and down and yammering. So we get to the Q&A section. They, they say, do you have any questions? First guy to speak up is me, obviously, because, you know, I, I rush in. Uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and I do that all the time. Um, for better or worse. So I, I rush in and I say, uh, yeah, look, um, thanks for that presentation. It was very fascinating. But here's the problem. You you said you're going to do a random sample on this slide and then two slides later you said we're actually going to do a controlled sample. Pff, you mind explaining? W- which one is it? And they waffled through an answer and, and I, I, I said, after they were done waffling, I said, um, okay, uh, fine. But look, can I... Here's where I'm getting a bit confused, because, again, you're saying it's a random sample. And then you're saying again later on that it's not a random sample. What, what is your method here? And the rest of my team is like, they're, they're, they're pinging me on a WhatsApp chat, and they're like, dude, you please, please, please stop being so confrontational. Please stop asking them these hard questions. <laughs> and I'm reading them, and they're just going, okay. Um, and here's the thing. They needed that. The, the, the team that was presenting needed that. They needed someone like me to be an absolute dick to them and tell them, you, you screwed up. And here's another thing. I want someone else to come up to me and say to me, you're being a dick. And you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And you're screwing up. And here's why you're screwing up. You know why? Because it makes me better. And you know where I get that mindset from? Martial arts. I get that from working with one of the world's top martial artists for five years. Every time I screwed up a technique, Grandmaster Ron Mizrahi would come up to me in a class and tell me, that looks like shit. You can do better. So do better. And I did better. And I did well enough that I got to Greenbelt in a very, very difficult martial art. It made me better, the constant criticism, the constant corrections, the constant checks on my form and the constant refusal to let me get away with sloppy shit. It made me better. And that's what will make you better. Constantly being told when you're screwing up and how to fix it. And that's what you need to find. You need to find men in your life who will tell you When you're being an ass, when you're making a mistake, when you're messing up, when you find those guys, treat them like kings. Treat them like they're worth their weight in gold, because they are. Those are the men you respect. Those are the men you admire. Those are the men who will tell you when you need to make a course correction. Those are the men to trust. Blindly. Trust them blindly, because they are willing to tell you what no one else will tell you. Iron sharpens iron. And this is how you get good at something. This is how you find the will to do what other men can't do. It's by finding those men who have the nerve and the decency and the kindness, and it is a kindness, to tell you when you're screwing up and why you're screwing up and where you're screwing up. So I want you to remember these four or five things that I've talked about. Number one, you must have the will to act. You must simply be willing to take a step. Just do something. Do something. I don't care what it is. If you're paralyzed by indecision, do something. It's better just... I mean, you know, there's that great scene in Starship Troopers, where uh, in the novel, where Johnny Rico is... um uh, is on the ground in a smash and grab or a smash and run raid against the skinnies right at the beginning of the book. And he cuts his way into a, through a wall and charges through and then he charges right back out again because he's, he, you know, he's, he's entered some sort of skinny flop house or maybe the, the, the regimental HQ or whatever. And he sees more skinnies than he ever wants to see in his life. He just grabs the first thing off his belt and chucks it in. And what is it? It's <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a bomb <laughs> with a 30-second <with> <laughs> timer on it that goes, I am, a th- I am a bomb that will go off in 30 seconds. I am a 30-second bomb. Uh, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, in, in skinny speed. And the book says very clearly, by sheer chance, I'd done the right thing. My, my drill instructors had, had dinned into me that uh, doing the wrong thing now was better than doing the right thing five seconds later. And that's exactly right. Just do something. Do something. Act. For God's sake. The second thing is to understand the difference between risk and uncertainty. You must make this understanding crystal clear in your mind. And it's not hard to do, conceptually speaking. It's hard to put into practice. But that comes through experience. And you're going to get that experience by applying the first principle, by having the will to act. The third idea is to take extreme ownership. When you screw up, You admit it right away. You just say, you know, it was me. Hey, I screwed up. I made a mistake. Take responsibility for your failures. Don't don't let anyone else cover for you or duck, you know, behind cover and and let someone else take the heat. Make sure that you take it. And number four, number four is you must always, always, always understand that iron sharpens iron. Seek out those who will tell you you're making a mistake and stick to them. Stick with them and let them criticize you. The will to act comes from a brilliant scene in Batman Begins. It's uh, the training montage between Ducard and Bruce Wayne. And it's that scene out on the ice where they're fighting each other with, uh, with, with swords. And Ducard says to Bruce, uh, Your parents' death was not your fault. It was your father's. And he says, and Bruce is like, What do you mean it was my father's fault? Your father failed to act. The man had a gun. Would that have stopped you? I've had training. Training is nothing. Will is everything. The will to act. And that's where it comes down to. That's how you become strong and dangerous as a man. That's how you do it. We're out of time, and uh, I'm sure you're sick and tired of listening to me scream into your eardrums. Um, make sure that you like, comment, share, and subscribe. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to my mailing list if you have not already. Make sure that you check out the Sharp novels um, using the links in the description box. Uh, check them. Check out the actual series on YouTube and on Netflix as well. Make sure that you get yourself a VPN connection if you haven't already, because you're going to need it. And uh, otherwise, I will catch you all later. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 66, The Will to Act. And this is Didact, signing off.